Amen. Good morning. All right. We're going to be in Obadiah today. Yes, that's a book of the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the chairs underneath you. If you'd like to turn there so you can follow along, it's on page 772. If you attend here and brought your own Bible, I can't help you with your page number, but hopefully you figure it out. There is a table of contents, after all. Uh, as Pastor John was saying earlier, at the end of the message, we're going to ask you, what is one takeaway from today's message? And so we've been doing that each week. Uh, we've been encouraging people to take notes. We learn better when we write things down. And I know some of you are sitting there and say, well, I don't. Okay, well, most people do. So we're trying to encourage that. Uh, statistically, people learn better with two forms of <clears throat> listening, writing, engaging, seeing, things like that. And it's also been a way that we're encouraging our church to start a conversation with someone else. And so if after church I want to go up and I don't know Mary here, which obviously I do, or I'm a really good guesser at names, one of the two, I could lead with, hey, my name is Jeff, and here's my takeaway from today, right? And we're encouraging you to meet somebody, lead with a takeaway, ask what theirs is, right? And it, it helps us keep that Bible or gospel conversation going a little longer when we gather so we don't pivot right towards what's for lunch or what game are we watching today or whatever. All those things are good. Just want to keep that Bible conversation going a little bit longer. So Obadiah, as you can see, we're working our way through the minor prophets, doing kind of one day per minor prophet. And so we're well into the 12 of them. Obadiah, his writing is right around 586 BC, lived right around that 600 mark. So think 2,600 years ago, roughly. And he is going to be the, the prophet who's going to speak right before the final destruction of Jerusalem. So let me back up really fast. If you go all the way back to where the kingdom split, it says divided kingdom, the people of God are not getting along well. That can't be a good sign, right? When you're God's people, God's country, if you will, Israel, God's people, in fact, Israel means governed by God, you should probably be able to get along a little better. They can't. And they want to do things differently, and so two tribes separate from ten tribes. The northern tribe is the ten that remains Israel. The southern kingdom, the two tribes become Judah. From that point on, there's about 20 kings per nation, right? And the 20 kings in the northern kingdom, zero are any good. Zero lead the people away from idolatry and back to God. In the southern kingdom, they have a little better track record, about eight of them, try and reform the people, bring them back to not worshiping idols, not looking like the nations around them. Twelve of them, however, are no good at all. And so what God has been saying all along through these minor prophets and through the other, the five major prophets, and by the way, that's built on size, not, not importance, right? They've been saying, listen, repent or. If you don't repent, Israel, we're gonna, God says, I'm going to have an army conquer you, and Assyria does, conquers them. And that same time, Assyria conquers much of Judah, but Hezekiah repents and calls the people to repentance. And so God saves Jerusalem and some surrounding areas. We pick up with Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is unique. Obadiah is one of only just a couple different prophets who don't speak just to the people of God. Now, I typically define a prophet as someone who is God's messenger, right, or God's spokesman, with God's message, with God's authority to God's people. Now it's that last part, 
to God's people is normally true. As you remember, Jonah goes to Nineveh, right? And then today, Edom, uh, Obadiah is going to speak to the people of Edom. So we'll hold on that for just a minute. But he's speaking in that time right before Jerusalem finally is conquered by the Babylonians. If you're familiar with any part of the Bible in the Old Testament, like Daniel, when they're conquered and taken into Babylon, this is right before that. So here's a main idea for today. Obadiah, the day of the Lord, a common theme in the Minor Prophets. Obadiah proclaims destruction of an evil nation as a foretaste of the destruction of all evil. Salvation is available to all, but the time of judgment draws near. God is glorified in justice or judgment and mercy, salvation. Right now, let me just kind of say that again. So the day of the Lord is a major theme amongst the prophets, especially the minor prophets, many of them. Two weeks ago, I talked to you about Sephaniah, the day of the Lord. It's the main idea there. Same thing here. So the day of the Lord, we're going to look at the day in the first 14, 14 verses, and then the day of the Lord in the last, whatever it is, 10 or so verses. The day is about Edom. The day of the Lord is going to be about all things, all nations, all of human history. Kind of takes us back to where we were right before the minor prophets when we were working through Revelation, right? That culmination of judgment and salvation when Jesus returns and judges all people. So that's kind of where we are. God is glorified both in justice or judgment and in mercy or salvation. So Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Let's pause. Edom, not a big familiar people group to you probably. But let me take you back in Old Testament history, right? Go back to Genesis, and we remember the man Abraham. So the world's kind of falling apart. Not a lot of people are following God. And God calls a man named Abram. He makes some promises to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and says, through you, I'm going to fulfill, and he gives a list of promises. Basically, generations after you, your people are going to inherit land. This is the land they're currently losing right now, right? That Israel is going to become this nation. And then another, and the major theme throughout all of the Old Testament, is that a promise comes that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what that's pointing forward to is Jesus coming through Abraham, now, Abraham has a famous son and a story about Abraham and Isaac going up on a mountain. Isaac then has twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, though a con artist for first half of his life, ends up becoming the man Israel. Esau becomes the Edomites. So here's a verse for you in Genesis 25. It says, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So it's Isaac's wife. The children struggled together within her. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So in contrast to normal, let's say, Old Testament life, where the older would be in charge, the older will serve the younger. The older in, <clears throat> the older in this case is Esau. So many generations later, a couple thousand years later, the nation Edom, God has kept them up in this hill country near the people of God, but it started to be that Edom has started to persecute both Israel and now Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 1, let's start at the beginning again. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. 
So Obadiah receives a vision from the Lord, or an oracle, like we talked about last week. Pastor Amadi talked about that last week. This vision God gives Obadiah is for the people of Edom, and he says, I see this vision where they're being called to war, right? And what God is beginning to say through Obadiah is that God is going to destroy Edom, right? And that'll kind of unpack in a little bit. So gather up for war, God says to the Edomites, but he's going to give them over to the nation of Babylon. So Babylon will come and destroy Edom. Now, it's not going to happen right away. What's going to happen is Babylon is going to come and destroy Judah and Jerusalem, the remaining kind of big area city of the people of God for their disobedience. Babylon is going to come in and conquer them, and the Edomites are going to join in. Even though Israel and Edom should be kind of related, they're going to jump in, and they're going to kind of fight alongside Babylon, and they're going to loot when the people are down, and when the, when the people are losing in battle, and they're fleeing for their lives, the Edomites are not going to help them. In fact, they're going to oppress them. And so Edom is going to jump in alongside Babylon, and God will then destroy Edom for their actions. What we kind of see here is the sovereignty of God, and we've talked about before the doctrine of providence, that God sovereignly uses human actions, even human sin sometimes, to achieve what he wants for his people or what he wants for his plan. In this case, he is going to use the negative actions of both Babylon and Edom to conquer not only his unrepentant people, but also the Edomites for jumping in. Does that make sense? So God sovereignly uses even the bad actions of others to accomplish his goal. So here's the catch, though. Babylon will also get destroyed for doing this. So everybody gets judged in this, just not in this book. All right, verse 2. God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The prize of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So there's a bit of wordplay here. God is using this high, low, you live in the mountains, you are up cleft among the rocks, you're up here, but so is your pride. Like your ego is way up here, and I'm going to bring you low. So he uses both where they live and what they're doing wrong as a bit of poetic, if you will, wordplay. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Now, I want to push pause. I just want to look at the modern church today. So, the modern American church. So, who are we in the story? And again, when we're here, we're gathered up on a Sunday, our job is not to learn something that's about them. Make sense? It's about us. See, God is calling us to repent. God is calling us to do what God has called us to do. So, it's always got to be about us. And so, we often ask ourselves the question, who are we in the story? Now, there's God... I'm just going to give you a pro tip. We're not God. Probably not God in the story, all right? Just in case there was disclarity there. Now, the Babylonians are going to be used by God, but they're not really in the story, so they don't really count. There's two other people groups. There's the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and there's Judah, or what remains of Judah. So Judah is being punished because they're the people of God who are not responding to being the people of God. So they're not repenting, they're not obedient, and other prophets have been calling them to turn towards God, and they're not doing it. That's kind of a, a sub-part of Obadiah. 
the main part of Obadiah is that he's, calling the Edom, he's telling the Edomites that they are going to be punished for their persecution of God's people. So we really have these two choices, and they're not good. We're either the disobedient people of God, or we're the people that oppress the people of God. And I think both are applicable today. We use this language around here a lot, and you may have heard me say it. It feels like as a church, the more we lean into a biblical definition of church, the more we lean into scripture, I feel like we're fighting a war on two fronts, right? We all know we're fighting a war against culture, right? Culture is going one direction. God is calling us the exact opposite direction. But as we go that direction, there's also this kind of second front of the war where we're fighting American church culture. We're fighting that consumeristic, individualistic kind of culture of church that fights back as you want to lean in scripturally. And so it, feel, and it feels like on, on one hand, we expect culture to think differently. That's okay, we know that. Right? The people of God, or, or Jesus himself, you just see how the world he lives in is so different than him. The hard one is when the quote-unquote church, right, when they're the ones that resist. And so I think we have two options here. Neither of them are pretty. They call us to see our sin. They call us to see where we need to change. So either Edom or Judah, you choose what is applicable today. Verse 5, if thieves come to you, God says, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not only steal enough for themselves, if grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? Now, there's an interesting metaphor here. God says to the Edomites, if somebody broke into your house and stole stuff, they'd probably take your expensive things, your good things, but they wouldn't take everything, right? They're going to leave you some stuff, right? And when people go and gather harvest food, when they, if you're going to go into an apple orchard or a grape vineyard, you're going to harvest the food, there's still some left over when you're done, right? What he's saying is, there's not going to be anything left over when I'm done for you. He's using this interesting, even when thieves come in, and they leave some. Even when gatherers come, they leave some. But his word to the Edomites is, he will not. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. So Edom, obviously descendant of Esau, he says, you will be pillaged and your treasure sought out like there will be nothing left. Now I want to zoom out again, right? Esau is this son of Isaac, so he is grandson of the famous Abraham. Legitimately, Abraham is the beginning of a lot of faith in God, whether that be Judaism, he is kind of the, the father of Judaism, he's the, because of that, he's the father of Christianity. Islam traits their roots back to him. That's a different conversation for a different day. They do. I would disagree, obviously. Right? But Abraham is this pillar of faith that, that Christianity, that we, the church, look back to, that the New Testament uses as an example of someone who lives towards the promises of God in which he never sees come true in his life. In fact, Abraham is told, listen, this isn't going to happen to you. It's going to happen generations after you. I'm going to make you this promise, but that promise won't come true for hundreds of years. Literally what God tells Abraham, and Abraham, not perfectly, but Abraham lives as a man of faith towards those promises. It's like sitting here today, most of us probably don't think Jesus is going to return today. If we did, there'd be a lot more people in church, right? Fair? All right. 
We may think it's soon or near or any word we want to insert, but we typically don't think today. Because that would change how we live and behave. And so we live as if there's time a little bit, right? But see, we've been told this is a promise. In fact, that's going to be part of the message today. There's a time where that's over with and Jesus returns. See, Abraham's entire promise was, here's what the promise is. You'll never see it, but it's for the generations after you. In fact, it will bless the whole world. The the land promises, the king, all that, that's that's for a national group of people that actually inherit that, that God fulfills his promise when the people leave the desert after the wilderness, the exodus, and they enter in with Joshua. God fulfills that hundreds of years later. But it won't be for another 1,000, 2,000 years that God fulfills that Abraham's descendants will bless the world, meaning Jesus will come through that family. And so he lives in faith of something he knows he will not see. That should challenge us, right? How do we live today if we don't think we're going to see all the promises of God come true in our lifetime? Do we still live as if they could happen at any moment? See, Abraham has a son named Isaac, who is a follower of God. Isaac has twin boys, Esau and Jacob, raises them in their faith. Esau ends up going completely the other way and doesn't follow God. Jacob, for a while, doesn't follow God, but eventually becomes a godly man. Now, I bring this up because in the church today, we tend to think or assume, maybe, that our kids, we're going to take them to church we're going to raise them going to church, and, and many of you go to Christian school and, and, or homeschool for, for other reasons, and we're going to do this, and, and we assume like they're going to grow up and they're going to stay worshipers of Jesus. But here's two boys that were raised in a home, one who does, one who doesn't. My question for you is, do you actively gospelize or evangelize or share Christ with your children? Or do you assume they're just going to kind of absorb it and by osmosis maybe come to faith? Here's a note for you. Evangelizing our children. We often assume our kids will follow Jesus, but don't do the hard work of regularly sharing the gospel with them. Being raised in a Christian home is not the same thing as being raised in the gospel. Esau is a prime example of this truth. Verse 7. God again, speaking to Edom. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. See, Edom has made relationships with nations that are oppressing God's people that are antithetical to God to begin with, like the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. And so Edom is aligned with these people, but they don't care about Edom. They don't care about the Edomites. Yeah, they'll take your help when you want to offer it, but eventually Babylon's going to destroy them. And that's what God is saying. You partner with Babylon, but when I'm done using Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, they're going to conquer you too. And it's for this. It's for you oppressing your brothers and sisters, literally your family, this nation over here. He says, you make this alliance with Babylon, but Babylon is lying to you. It begs us to ask the question, who do we align ourselves with in this world? Right? What are the things that are not God that we align ourselves with that we think will bring us security? 
That could be aligning ourselves to the cost of other things and to education. Not, and we're all for education, don't get me wrong. But there's a wrong way to put it as well. Aligning ourselves with political parties that neither one of them, of our political parties today, represent Jesus well. But we'll be completely aligned to something and trusted something as if this is the solution, not God. See, we do this a lot. We align ourselves with things. We put trust in things that are not in the Lord. Right? We say this often here. If you think the solution is, or the political solution is the answer, you're missing the point. Right? Oh, that God is the only one that can change people. You can't legislate morality. You can't make enough rules to get people to behave. But God changes the heart. Verse 8, God says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord. So that day is the day of destruction for Edom. So on that day, that's what he's going to say. Now he's going to repeat that over and over. So re- verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. You get a lot of names, like city names, like their capital of Taman, right? Or Mount Esau, like the Edomites, their ancient father Esau. So you get a lot of names from there. But here's what he's saying. Will I not on that day destroy you? And in fact, God then names your wise men and your mighty men, right? Your earthly, the things you trust in that are earthly, your wise men, your educated men, and your mighty men. Right? And so a lot of times we talk about here, because the modern day American phenomenon is to sacrifice pretty much everything for the sake of education, right? We will profess to be Christians and follow Jesus, put Jesus first in our life, but then choose to participate in things like sports that will pull us out of church for three, four, five months at a time and not understand the message that sends to our kids. And we'll do that all in the name of we want to get them into this college that's expensive and, and we want to pay for it. But ultimately what we're doing is we're putting priorities out of line. Again, you've got that, I will destroy your wise men, right? And your mighty men, again, the political nature of the Christian American, the American Christian church is incredible, right? How deeply ingrained that is. But your might and your wise, he says, I'm going to destroy them too. And so it reminds us to ask the questions, what are the things we align ourselves with or what are the things we put trust in or value in or priority in that ultimately is going to go away? whether that be at the return of the Lord or at the time you die or I die or whatever, the things we can't take with us and what are the things that creep in and and crowd out the discipleship of our children or even our own discipleship in Christ. So God aims at the wise men and the mighty men. Here's a verse in Romans. It's Romans 1, verse 24 and 25. It says, therefore God gave them up, and it goes on to list some things. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now I want you to hear this. When we talk about sin, we, also, we often talk about idolatry. And the idea is not that you and I have little carved images at home that we light incense to and bow down to. I'm assuming most of us don't have that. Or I'm assuming, <laughs> hoping none of us have that. We'll, we'll start there. So I never want to assume. But let's go there, right? But the idea that we will put things in a place that only God should be, that, that only Jesus should be, that we will put things in that place becomes idolatry. 
It can be good things like our kids or our spouse. It can be good things like education. It can be good things. We're in a nation where we have a voice in our government. It can be, that's a good thing. None of those are God things, right? None of those rise to the level of giving worship to. But we do often orient our lives around them in unhealthy ways. When we do that, what we're doing is we're worshiping created things instead of the creator. And that's how Paul, to the church in Rome, describes sin. He gives a list of those sins in this passage. Some of them verbal, some of them sexual, some of those physical, some of all these different things, but he, he defines them all as worshiping created things over and above the creator himself. And it's a way to view sin in our lives so we understand what we're doing. Verse 10, it says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, Esau, Jacob, right? Because you, Edomites, persecuting these people, Israel, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. So God gives the reason for judging them. Verse 11, on that day, now I want you to hear there's 10 more times on that day, on the day, right? So verse 11, on the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So what God is saying here to the Edomites is Babylon is going to conquer what remains of Judah, which is functionally Jerusalem, a massive walled city and some people that live in the areas surrounding it. And when that happens, God gives Edom a chance to repent. He says, when that happens, don't you celebrate it. Don't you rejoice over their destruction. Don't you go in and pillage and loot right, and take what is not yours, don't you reject the one who escapes, the fugitive, the survivor who is on the run trying to live. Don't you, don't you mistreat them? Because then, if that's the case, then Babylon will destroy you, and that's exactly what happens. The Edomites join in, ignore God, loot, plunder, pillage what's left of Judah, and then Babylon just conquers them in response to what God had called them away from. And there's a way to pause in here and, and ask some cultural questions about ourselves. Like, do we celebrate the loss of others? Right, let, let me just, I'll get personal. Let's look at social media, right? I know there's like five of you are like, oh, I'm not on social media. Good, all right. Look at the way we celebrate. I don't care who you're voting for this coming election or the last election. I mean, I care, but I don't care, right? But look at how we speak about the opponent. But I think there's a, a thing, and if you're old enough, you probably see this. There was this decorum and respect that is gone. It's been gone for generations of presidents now. Now, today, it is all about trash talk, right? It is all about undermining the person. And when they lose, celebrating the loss, right? And, and there's outrage when something happens, and then when it's overturned, there's, there's this, this celebration that is even sinful. You could be joyful that, 
that your candidate won. You, you, can, you can think maybe we're taking a step in the right direction, whatever that is. But when we turn to negative, when we turn to trashing the other people, right, it even calls out looting. And I was asking for a good example of looting, because the only one that would come to mind was like uh, with the riots two, three years ago, right? And Alex had a great one. It was Hurricane Katrina, right? None of us are opposing each other within the conversation of Hurricane Katrina, right? Like, we all say, yeah, that was rough, right? Like, that destroyed homes, did this. What happened? People went in and looted stores after. That's horrible, right? And so we don't celebrate the loss of others, even, let's say, people we oppose. See, as followers of Jesus, we're, we're supposed to guard our speech and our attitude. We're supposed to be above reproach. We're supposed to be distinct and different. We're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to do so so that when we look like Jesus, flawed as we may be, because we are, we're all flawed, all sinful, all broken, right? If you're new to Generations Church, we'll tell you that all the time, like we all are jacked up. We know that. But we should look enough different to where when things take place, people should look to us and say, okay, what's different? Or I want to know about Jesus because I see so-and-so who looks like Jesus. I want to know more. See, but we don't. We look like the world around us. In fact, the, like the number one problem of Israel in the Old Testament is wanting to be like the nations around them. God is leading them. He's speaking through prophets, and they say, we want a king. And they say this, so we can be like the nations around us. God's like, I'm your king. No, we want a human king. It's heartbreaking, but then we apply that to us, like we want to be like the world around us. We want to fit in. We want to do the things that people around us do. We want to talk the way that people around us talk. We want to kind of dance on the graves of opponents' losses. And God says, don't do that. Right? Your speech matters. Your actions matter. The way you present yourself, because if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a representation of Christ. So your speech matters all the more. Not just rules, hey, do this, don't do that. This is about us being representatives for Christ in our community. So do not rejoice, boast, or gloat. Do not loot when they're down. Do not mistreat the fugitives or survivors. It's almost as if there's an etiquette to winning, in a sense, to being to when something good goes your way or when something you see as the right outcome happens, there's a way to be joyful about that and then there's a way to be sinful in that. And God is calling us not to be sinful in that. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord. Now let's pause. So the day of the Lord is different than that day, the day. The 11 times that said, that's about the destruction of Edom. The day of the Lord, most of you should be really familiar with, we just finished the book of Revelation, right? So that day of the Lord reminds us of that final moment where Jesus comes and returns and judges, right? That Jesus is the final judge, and in that moment, on the day of the Lord, on Christ's day, when that happens, it's a wrap, right? That's, that's it. That's the moment for judgment. So now, Obadiah speaking on behalf of God is speaking the first 11 times about the day of destruction for Edom. Now he pivots. Verse 15, let's start there. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. 
As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. In 2 Timothy, it, it, it says this. I thought it was really clear. 2 Timothy 4.1 says, I charge you in the presence of God, Paul speaking to Timothy, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Right? That Christ will come to judge, to reign, to rule, and to judge. You're mine, you're not mine. Right? And there will be a moment, and that moment could come today. I, I, I could die on the way home or something. Or it could come in a thousand years. We don't know. It could be that final day, or it could be the day when my options are gone. Right? There will be a day, and then there will be the day. And Obadiah pivots to the day of the Lord. And he does this. Every minor prophet, remember our intro message in Luke, where Jesus says that all the law and the prophets point to me. Jesus says that in Luke 24. All the law and the prophets point to me. And so we see Obadiah pivoting towards Jesus. Right? The gospel message here, the first 14 verses about the destruction of Edom, and then we're pointing into Jesus. See, the gospel message is that, that there's a, a God who created you and loves you, designed you, made you, and designed you to be a worshiper of God. That's not just when we sing or when we pray, the worship service that we're in, but that our lives are to bring worship or glory to God. We do that by hearing, hey, how, when you when things go your way and you gloat, you're not bringing glory to God. When things go your way and you, and you say certain things or you, you slander, you loot, you, you gloat, you do these things like you're not glorifying God. You were made to glorify God. We were made to glorify God. God loves you and made you with a purpose, an ontological design, if you will, a purpose. But sin entered into human history. And the garden comes in, it breaks everything and then we see the effects in our lives. We join the story and we sin. We add sin upon sin upon sin. And then we look around the world and we wonder why it's so broken. Well, that's why. Because we live in a world filled with sin. Yours, mine, others, people before us. If we live long enough, people after us. And so that sin separates us from God. But God, knowing that we were now sinful and broken and corrupt... And God being a holy God that, that cannot abide that, God provides a solution in Christ. That the Son of God, that God himself becomes human flesh, fully God and fully man, that Jesus comes and he lives a life that you and I are called to live but fail, and, and more than just fail, choose not to live. And he does it perfectly, his entire life, highs and lows, successes, whatever it might be, all the things, when things go his way and when they don't go his way, when he's hungry, when he's fed, when he's lonely, when he's around people, all of it all brings glory to God. His life is a life of worship. And so Jesus trades his life on the cross. So he takes the penalty of the wrath of God against sin on him. So he takes the penalty on the cross, is laid in the ground for our forgiveness, resurrects from the grave to give us new life, ascends and is seated on the throne today awaiting the day of the Lord where he returns and waits and judges. And we live in this place between the ascension and the return. And we live in expectation of this. But we also live in this place where we can live for, for Jesus or, or we can live for the world. Just like in that verse where God gives Edom the opportunity to not do what they're planning on doing, 
God gives us the opportunity to live for Jesus. But when the day of the Lord comes, when, that, when, the, when it's all a wrap, when, it, when that time comes, whether that comes because I die, you die, somebody dies, or when it comes because Jesus returns, that's it. And all the decisions made before it are complete. There's no post-mortem repentance. There's no opportunity when you get to Jesus and you had to live for him like, hey, I take that all back. Because he's given us this. I want to spell this out a little clearer in Romans. So just do three verses in Romans. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is a wrathful God. He takes wrath on sin. Like a judge punishes or should punish evil, God punishes evil. His wrath is against unrighteousness, against sin. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like the wages of sin, like we should eternally, we all deserve to be eternally separated from God for living with us on our own thrones most of our lives, right? But in Christ, we have the opportunity to get new life. Final verse in Romans is Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. See, the moment comes where the wrath of God will be poured out on your sin, my sin, our sin. Either it will be poured out on us or it was poured out on Christ on the cross. See, he has come that he might take the wrath of God for us. And now, now it's up to us to live in Christ. See, living in Christ means living in repentance. It's not a, a prayer you pray one time and maybe you went down on a field or a beach or you went to a baptism, whatever, but it's a life lived focused on Jesus. It's a, it's a life with, where, where Jesus is central. He's at the top of the org chart for you. He's the big E on the I chart where every day you get up to follow him, not you. Now, I'm going to just give you the, the, the reality of it. Every day you're going to wake up wanting to follow you. But it's that life of upending that, of living for Jesus, even when living for other things is, is so compelling or so, so uh, distracting or, or so kind of contagious, if you will. See, the gospel is the very power of Christ in us, changing us. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. Like you must have spiritual life to do this. This isn't something you could do on your own. So the wrath of God is going to be poured out on all sin. It was either covered by Jesus or it will be covered by the people and nations who sin. Our choice is who are we in that story. Verse 16, for you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. This drinking reference is recent for us. We should hear kind of echoes of Revelation 14 and Revelation 16. Even of Christ's words in the garden, we'll put those up first. In Matthew 26, it says, And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is praying on the night he's about to be betrayed and then go to the cross. And the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on Jesus for all who will be in Christ, for all who are believers, for all who are truly in him. His question is, God, 
And his human side, I just love the human side of this. If there's any other way, let this cup pass. Because drinking from your wrath is too much, or it's a lot. Of course, Jesus says, but not as I will, but you, but I'll do whatever. He just has that human moment where he admits the wrath of God is going to be horrible. In Revelation 14, speaking of the day of the Lord, it says this, those who are not in Christ will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence, obviously, of Jesus. So we have options. Either Jesus drinks that cup of wrath that we deserve, but he does it for us, or we do it forever. And the message of the day of the Lord, and it's not meant to, to it shouldn't, I'm not trying to scare you or guilt you or shame you into something. It's, it's to say that God paints this picture clearly from cover to cover in Scripture that Jesus speaks about it a lot, and, it, and he does so to his people. Jesus wasn't running around on street corners telling people to go into hell. He was teaching his disciples that when the day of the Lord comes, that's it. So go live for him today so that other people will know him, so that other people will see Jesus through us. He was teaching his disciples to motivate us, to cause us to be like him in the world so that others may want to know him. Obadiah has been given the message that Edom will be destroyed, but they have an opportunity to repent. And then the big message that this is a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord, when everyone who has not repented will be judged for their sin. Verse 17, it says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The name of the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. Those two, Jacob and Joseph, talk about the reuniting of the two kingdoms, which they do in Ezra and Nehemiah when they enter back into their land. And the house of Esau, stubble, Edom will be destroyed. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. You see, for some in Judah, when they're destroyed, they'll survive. And there'll be what the Old Testament calls a remnant of belief, a remnant of faith. And we see that. We see like Daniel in Babylon, a man of faith who is keeping a true faith to pass on to others. But he says in, in Esau and in Edom, all will be destroyed. Verse 19, those of the Negev shall, pros- shall possess Mount Esau and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up on Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He looks forward to a day when the whole world comes under the rule and reign of Christ forever. See, Obadiah, as every prophet does, looks forward to Christ to come. See, the the fulfillments are always about Jesus and the kingdom, not any one kingdom. See, this can never be about the U.S. can never be about Israel. can never be about China or Zimbabwe or whatever. It's always about the kingdom. You see, the fulfillments of God come true in Christ in the kingdom. What we get to do is live here as sent missionaries, 
as people on a mission to shine the light of Christ to others. That's our job. Not to try and fix a patch of dirt somewhere. Some are better places to live than others, granted, but, but not to fix this, but rather to fix things in Christ or have Christ fix things through us eternally. So God gives salvation to those who repent and they will live in the land again. Remember, as we finish Revelation, everything changes here. All of sin is destroyed and this is remade and we begin to live in a world the way it was created by God to be in. We will be here. We always think if we go there, we'll be here forever. The gospel version of that is that God gives salvation to those who repent and eventually enter into eternity. So maybe you identify with Obadiah. Maybe you've been resistant to being a part of a church. Maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you find yourself in that. Maybe you are, but you've been doing this alone or doing this your way. Maybe you find yourself more in Judah, who've been the people of God, who know better and who've been told, but still live in ways that are antithetical to Christ and to his kingdom. Where do you find yourself in that story? So I want to give some kind of some ideas for application. So for me, I was thinking that I need to see opposition to God as normative inside the church today. I told you it's been a struggle. I get that we're living in ways that are not the world's. I get that. But the church in America has become resistant to Scripture. We just got to hear that and understand that. That doesn't mean I have it all right or we have it all right. We are conforming to Christ through the Word. But we should just understand that we're going to have a struggle with the world, with others, whatever it might be. For those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, we'll say mature believers, you should be able to teach both the hope and the etiquette of faithfulness. The hope that Jesus will make everything right and how to live in between. How to live in the times where things don't go your way and how to not gloat and overdo it and think when things do. What is, what is the right way to live that glorifies Jesus, that others might want to know Jesus because of us? For newer believers, people newer to the faith, you will find opposition. You must learn to lean into the church. This is your spiritual family. This is where we cling to one another through Christ to live in this world. Learn to lean into that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus you, you should hear that judgment is real, that eternity is real, salvation is real, and that Jesus extends that to you today. That God loves you, designed you, and even though we've all broke the design, God has also paved a way back. For kids and parents, my challenge for you, do we evangelize our kids? Actively, do we share the gospel with them to conversion, or do we just assume they will come to faith by osmosis, by sitting here and hearing it. Though sitting here is great, but it is your job to teach your kids the gospel. That's why we're here, to partner with you in the gospel. That's 100% what Wednesday nights and Sundays have been about, of leaning into how do we partner with you to disciple your children. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather today, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have provided all things for us. Today is a message of calling to repentance. And for us, a lot of that is. But a reminder that there will be a day when it's all too late. And I know it's hit me this week. 
that I act as if I have time to repent or time to change things or time to share the gospel with someone else, that I might not have that time. Time's not guaranteed. The day of the Lord will become, will come, it, it will be a surprise. Or the end of our lives may come as a surprise. So let us live towards that every day. Let us lean into you through your church. Let us be that family of families to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We take one or two minutes. And so not long takeaways. I know. We're like, oh, I didn't get to the second person. Shorter, right? What is one takeaway from today that stands out to you that you want to act on this week? Take two minutes.